Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That's Jesus he's putting to the test. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word and as we look at the way in which your son was challenged and tested, how he wisely responded and pointed out what it means to love others and why it is that we need him. We pray that we would understand your word and that we would rejoice in the fact that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Often we're challenged in an adversarial situation. At least, at least I'm often challenged in adversarial situations, and, and you may be as well. And when that happens, oftentimes the best course of action is to ask questions. At times, a well-placed question is far more helpful than trying to answer someone else's question, if you're aware of that. So even in an evangelistic situation in which you're sharing the gospel with someone and they start to ask you questions, at times the most helpful answer is for you to ask them a question, for you to turn the discussion in a direction that is more helpful. So how, how that happens is it might, it might work like this. Let me give you a a hot-button example like, or, or issue that I'm, I'm often asked about because of the cultural situation right now. Here, here's a hot-button one I'm asked about. Do you really believe that homosexuals will go to hell? I'm asked that a lot. Now, why that as opposed to adulterers or fornicators or liars or thieves or murderers or whatever? It's because of the culture we're in right now that I get asked that one more than any other one. Do you really believe homosexuals will go to hell? And to answer that question would require a lot of teaching about God, his holiness, sin, what all the sins are that that are involved, salvation, what you mean by the term homosexual. Do you mean someone who who has 
those kinds of feelings and is repentant and trusts in the Lord? Do you mean someone who's actively involved in that lifestyle? Do you mean someone who slips into that sin from time to time? And you get into all these discussions, but what it would have to come back to is the idea that, well, everyone deserves to go to hell. Everyone deserves to go to hell. And so I don't want to point out a special class of people and say they deserve to go to hell. But if I answer that question right off, first of all, usually people don't give me a chance to explain myself. And second of all, the answer takes way more than we generally have time for, and they usually hone in on the one word, yes, right? And then nothing else I say gets heard. So oftentimes it's better just to ask a question of them. In fact, a better approach that I've used lately is, do you believe that anyone deserves to go to hell and that anyone will in fact go to hell for any reason at all? And generally the answer is, no, I don't. And if they don't, then why do they care about my answer to their question anyway? They're just trying to trap me. And people often tried to trap Jesus in the same way. And he was brilliant at asking them questions in response. In the passage we're looking at today, Jesus asked two questions by an expert in the law. He's an expert in Jewish law. And the man asks the first question to try and make Jesus look bad. And he asks the second question to try and justify his own self-righteousness. So he asks two questions. And Jesus replies to both questions with two different questions. Which make a devastating point regarding the self-righteousness of this particular lawyer or scribe or teacher of the law. Let's look at the first question together. Look at verse 25 of Luke 10. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, this kind of lawyer is someone who, it's not like a lawyer in our day who just studies American law and, and is involved in the courts and jurisprudence, etc. This is a, a, a student of the Old Testament law. And by the Old Testament law, we, we don't just mean the first five books of the Bible, or the Old Testament. We mean the whole Testament. This person is a student of the law. They know the Word. This is what he does for a profession. He studies the word. He studies the law. He applies it to people. That's what he does. And he stands up to ask Jesus a question. Now, why did he stand up? Well, that was common in that culture. When you had a question, you would stand up out of respect to ask your question of the rabbi or the teacher. And you, you guys know we don't do that. We raise our hand typically when we're in a setting and to ask a question. In this culture, you would stand up to ask a question. And so he stood up to ask the question, but he isn't actually being respectful in doing so because he's standing up to put him to the test. He wants to make Jesus look bad. That's his goal. And Jesus is not stupid. He knows what this man is after, and he knows this man is looking to make him look bad. And so here's what he says. He puts him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a simple enough question, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's very easy for Jesus to say, well, believe in me. Believe in me. Repent of your sins. Trust in me. I'm going to do all the work for you on the cross, and you'll be saved. That's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus doesn't answer that way because he knows this man is there to put him to the test, and he knows this man is there to cause him problems. He knows this man already doesn't trust in him, and he knows this man is trusting in his own self-righteousness, and he's thinking he's pretty sly and pretty smart. He's going to try to turn the word against Jesus. And so Jesus responds. He said to him, what is written in the law? Let's refer to the Old Testament. How do you read it? In other words, I'm going to ask you the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what, what does the Bible say? 
How do you read it? What does it say? And he answered. Here the man answers Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now this isn't the only place, so you're aware, in the New Testament that the great commandment is mentioned. It's not the only place. It's also mentioned in Matthew 22, 34. I want you to look there and compare it. So hold your hand in Luke 10, because in Matthew 22, the great commandment's actually mentioned by Jesus. Here it's mentioned by this lawyer. But in Matthew 22, you have a different setting, and and I want you to see how it's dealt with there. Matthew 22 and verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he, that being Jesus, silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now notice the difference in the question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment or which is the great commandment in the law? So what's the great commandment in the law? What is it? It's a different question. In the one case, the attorney, the lawyer asked him what? What do you do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? In this case, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus responds. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's a summary statement for the entire Old Testament. The great commandment is comprehensive. It's all your heart. It's your affections. It's what you love. All your mind, it's, it's what you think about and dwell on. All your soul, that's just your being. All your strength, that's all your might. Everything in you comprehensively is in love with God. Everything about you is given over to the love of God, and then you love your neighbor as yourself. And this really sums up two tables of the law. If you guys are familiar with, uh, with the um, Old Testament Ten Commandments, What happens there in the Ten Commandments is you have two tables. The first four commandments, shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images or idols. Worship them. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And you shall keep the Lord's day or the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath holy. So these four commandments all revolved around your love toward God. They're vertically oriented. You love him above all else. And that's how the, this is how it's shown. It's expressed through not having other gods. Before me doesn't mean that you can love something, you know, as a god or worship something as a god after you worship him as a god. It doesn't mean that I'm the top god and then there are other gods, right? Before me means in my presence. No other gods, I'm it. Don't make any graven images. You worship me the way I determine I'm going to be worshipped. And I don't want to be worshipped like the pagans who make these graven images. That's not how I want to be worshipped. Third commandment, don't take my, my name in vain. In other words, my name is a summation of my person and my character. And if you take it in vain, what that means is, is that you're using it in a way that's less worthy than it's worthy of. So, for example, you could take the Lord's name in vain during a worship song. As you're sitting here singing his name and his character, and you're checked out thinking about something else. This isn't just dropping curse words. 
as you're praying, and as you pray, you don't really think too highly of the God you're praying to. You doubt he really can be of help. You don't recognize his holiness or his grace or his mercy or his love. You're just sort of checked out, going through the motions. That's taking his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. That means you're taking one day in seven to set it apart as a day of worship unto the Lord, a day of rest in which you trust him and say, you know what, if I can't get my work done in the other six days, then I've got too much work. And I'm going to take a day in which I say, Lord, I'm going to put all this aside and trust you with this day. I know I've got all the world bearing down upon me, but I actually trust you. And I believe you're sovereign. And I'm going to rest in this day and let you take care of my life. And I'm just going to think about you and worship you. And so these are all directory. And this is how you're showing love to him. First table of the law. Second table of the law is the other six commandments. Honor your father and mother. Right? One of the ways you love one another or you love others as yourself is you honor your mom and dad. What does that mean? That doesn't just mean you obey them as children. It means, according to Jesus in Matthew 15, that when they're elderly, you care for them. You don't leave them out on the street. It's comprehensive honor and respect for your parents. It's how you love someone as you love yourself. Like you're going to want your children to do for you. Right? Don't murder. You could see why that would be loving. Right? Not to murder someone. I don't think I have to explain that to you. Jesus tells us it's more than just about killing people physically, incidentally. You kill them in your heart all the time when you hate them, curse them. Don't commit adultery. You don't take another man's wife from him, and you don't cheat on your spouse. It's not loving. It's completely self-centered. It's harmful. Same thing's true of lust, according to Jesus. Don't steal. Stuff doesn't belong to you. You don't take it from other people. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. You don't, don't lie about people. Don't gossip and slander and right? don't covet your neighbor's stuff or spouse or anything else. It's just a statement that I don't trust God for what he's given me, so I want what he's given them, which Paul says is idolatry in another form. So this is how we love our neighbor as ourselves. Second table of the law, first table. It's how we love God. This is what it looks like. In other words, that's why Jesus would come in and say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What does he mean by that? If you love me, it'll show up in the way you live. You can say you love me, but if, but if it doesn't show up in the way you live, what good, what kind of love is that? I can say I love my spouse, but if I don't show love to her in the way that I live, what good is it? It's empty words. And so there's this comprehensive sense of the command. That's why Jesus can say, it's all summed up. The entire law is summed up in this. All the law and the prophets are summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, you will keep the rest of the law. God is to be above everything. Every sin is ultimately a failure to love God well. You hear that? Every sin is ultimately a failure to love God well. You guys are familiar with the story of David? And Bathsheba, are you familiar with that story? David is a king. He has a wife, incidentally, already. Um, and he's the king of Israel. And one night he's out on the rooftop and he sees this woman, Bathsheba. And she's bathing on her rooftop and David spies her. And I don't know whether David at that evening is being a pervert out looking around for women who are bathing or if he just happened to see her. I don't really know. But in some sense, David sees this woman 
and he desires to have her. Now Bathsheba's married. She has a husband named Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, who is a faithful servant of King David's. Faithful servant of King David's. And he wants Bathsheba for himself. He violates the 10th commandment, doesn't he? Covets another man's wife. And he, he not only wants Bathsheba for himself and violates the 10th commandment, but he takes her for himself and he sleeps with her, violating the commandment that you shall not commit adultery. So he's lusting in his heart and then he physically carries it out. And so now not only has he violated the 10th commandment, he's violated the 7th commandment, right? And you go further because she gets pregnant and he wants her to lie about it. And then he finds out Uriah the Hittite is there to visit and he doesn't want, he wants to encourage Uriah the Hittite to get together with his wife so that Uriah the Hittite will think that that baby is his. That Uriah is not David's. And so he's trying to deceive. And you know how the sin just grows, right? Just grows. So he wants to deceive. And then Uriah the Hittite is so faithful to David that he won't go home and be with his wife. And so David knows he has a problem. I can't deceive them into thinking that that this is Uriah's baby. And so now what am I going to do? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will tell my generals, essentially, my captains, you put Uriah on the front lines in the next battle so that he gets killed. And so now he's committing murder. So he's murdered Uriah. He's soiled his own generals or captains and making them complicit in the murder. He has offended this woman by taking advantage of her. He's offended his own wife. He's committed corruption or brought corruption and sin into his leadership as king. He's made a huge mess. Huge mess. He sinned against all sorts of people. And in Psalm 51, we hear this statement that ought to cause you to stop. If you look at Psalm 51, as, G- as David is praying, David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You can hear this man who knows he's messed up big. He knows he's sinned big and he's asking for forgiveness. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he says this word that ought to stop you. This this is a man who's killed another man, taken advantage of his wife, corrupted his own leadership of his kingdom, lied, coveted, cheated on his own wife, probably hurt his own kids. Now listen to this answer. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What do you mean, David, against you, you only have you sinned? You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Michael. You sinned against all kinds of people here. Sin against your generals. You sin against a whole kingdom. What do you mean against you, you only have I sinned? What David is saying is that at its core, every one of his sins is ultimately a failure to love God. It's ultimately a sin against God. Yes, did David sin against all these other people? Yes. But at its core, his sin is ultimately a failure to love God. And he knows that. So when you're harboring bitterness toward someone, which I'm sure some of you are right now, you have bitterness in your heart toward people, you're failing to love God well, not just them. You hear that? That's why you got to deal with that and seek reconciliation right away. You can't just leave it there. You're not just sinning against that person. You're not loving them well, but you're failing to love God well also. When you're using your speech to tear down another person, 
gossiping, slandering, bearing false witness in some way, you're not just sinning against that person. You're failing to love God. When you're looking at porn or you're lying or you're cheating on your taxes, you're failing to love God well. Further, we not only love God, but we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we truly love God, then our love is like his love. And our love then looks out to the needs of others because that's God's love. God created us out of his love and he redeems us out of his love. He didn't need us. He came pursuing us, looking outward. And he created us. And his love always looks outward. And you can listen to the last couple sermons to get a hold of that. But his love is always looking outward. And our love is to look outward to the needs of others. We aren't to be selfish, self-centered types, but rather we're to consider others more important than ourselves. Look at John chapter 15. Jesus lays us out with regard to his disciples, and he says this in John chapter 15 and verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So what does it look like to prove to be his disciples? You're bearing fruit. And how does that look? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That ought to stop you dead in your tracks, incidentally. As the Father has loved the Son, so has Jesus loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now think about this. Jesus has loved you in the same way the Father loved him. And now we're to love one another in the same way he loved us. So we're to love one another in the same way the Father loves the Son. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. So the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus explains this in the Gospel of Matthew. However, the context here in Luke is different. And I want you to hold that because the context is very different here in Luke. In Luke, the lawyer does not ask, if you're looking there at chapter 10, he doesn't ask the question, What's the greatest commandment? It's not the question he asks. The lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't answer his question. Instead, Jesus asks a question to force the lawyer to answer his own question. And the lawyer answers the question with the great commandment. Jesus says, well, he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does it say in the law? How do you read it? And the guy says, well, and he points out the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And now here's the kicker. Who can keep that? Who keeps the great commandment? Who has ever kept it? See, I hear Christians saying all the time that Christianity can be summed up in the great commandment. Love God and love others. That's the gospel. The problem with this is the gospel is supposed to be good news. I don't know about you, but um, how many of you find it to be good news that Jesus comes and says, listen, here, here's, here's the sum of it all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you can go to heaven. If not, you're going to hell. There's the good news. How many of you go, well, that's great news. I'm so excited to hear that because now I know clearly I'm going to hell, right? And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's clear. 
No, none of us can say that we would be happy to hear this kind of an answer. It isn't good news. We've all failed to do it. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. But the problem is, is that the, the lawyer doesn't really know it at first. But he does start to get it as Jesus asks him a question. See, Jesus knows this, and you can imagine almost with a glimmer in his eye and almost a slight smile as he's caught the lawyer in his own trap as he responds after the lawyer says, well, the great commandment, as he responds, Jesus turns and makes the statement, you have answered correctly, verse 28, do this and you'll live. Answer correct. Do this and you'll live. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, every moment, perfectly, with that failure, from the moment you're born to the moment you die, do this and you'll live. Right? You can almost see Jesus stating that almost with a smile like, you know you're toast now. Right? You know you're in trouble. You know you can't do it. You thought you were good enough when you walked in here, and you thought you were going to trap me, you little self-righteous jerk, but I just caught you. Right? I just caught you, and look at what he says. Verse 29. But he, that's, that's the lawyer here, he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? You, you can see it, right? That's what I'm supposed to do to inherit eternal life? Well, then, then who is my neighbor? Because I'm pretty sure that if it applies to everybody, I'm in trouble. And he wants to justify himself. That's a mild theme that actually goes through the Gospel of Luke. You run into it occasionally. Like in Luke chapter 18, you run into it with the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who both go to the temple to pray. And, and the tax collector is saying, right, for, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee is saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these other sinners, especially not like that tax collector over there, right? And Jesus says, the man who cried out, have mercy on me, the tax collector, he went back to his house justified, and the other man didn't because he was self-justifying. And this man is attempting to self-justify. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And he asked this question. The lawyer wants to justify himself because he knows that he hasn't kept the command. The very command he said would give him life, he's failed to keep it. So he wants to justify himself because he's failed to love God and his neighbor well and he's seeking self-justification. Jesus now turned this man's trap into a scene in which this man realizes he has condemned himself. And the lawyer is attempting to ask a second question to squirm his way out of the situation. He wants to narrow the field of possible neighbors so he can make some desperate attempt to hold on to his own righteousness and goodness. But Jesus uses a parable to lead the guy to a question that Jesus wants to ask instead. So he uses a parable and he wants to switch the question. So look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So you know, the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a 17-mile road, pretty much all downhill. Lots of turns, um, lots of caves you can hide out in. Um, it's a 3,400-foot drop in elevation over 17 miles, and you're going down there. And so this man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, literally going down. And as you go down this road, it was known to be a dangerous place to walk, particularly at night, because robbers and various thieves can hide out in caves along the road, and they can mug you. And so this man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him. Why do they strip him? 
It's because they can sell his clothes. So they're going to sell his clothes. They strip him naked, take all his clothes to sell them, and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Meaning at the, basically at, at the edge of his life. This guy's almost dead. Now by chance, verse 31, a priest was going down that road. Now listen, you, you would have been clear it was a priest in that culture because priests walked around with the priestly garbs. Everybody knew they were priests. So you imagine the scene as this priest is walking by. Now he's going from Jerusalem back to Jericho because he's coming down that road as well. He's going back to Jericho, which means because of the tradition of the priests, the priest would have just spent a week in Jerusalem working on purification. He'd gone through a week of purification rites and been walking back. And as he's walking back, the priest comes along, going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He moved to the other side of the road and got away from the naked, half-dead man who got beat down, and he wants to get around him and away from him. No compassion for him, concerned only about himself. Now you realize how difficult this would have been for him to stop and help. If he had stopped and helped, he would have had to either take this man to Jericho or to Jerusalem. He would have had to help him financially. He would have had to take care of him physically. And then he would have had to go back to Jerusalem for another week of ritual purification because this man would have soiled him. So he didn't want to do it, so he kept going. He had very good justifications why he didn't need to love this man above himself. So then, verse 32, so likewise, a Levite... Now, Levites are guys that help priests. They're not all priests. Some of, them are, some of these Levites are just helping out with the priesthood. They're like what our deacons are to elders. Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. These are two leaders in the faith. A Levite, i.e., basically like a deacon, and a priest, basically like an elder or pastor. And the pastor, essentially, and the deacon move around this guy because they don't want to be inconvenienced by him. Verse 33, and then here comes the shocker, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, why is that stunning? The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And I've gone into the history of that in previous sermons, so I'm not going to go into it today. But they despised each other. They did not trust each other. The Jews considered the Samaritans to have a false religion and to be inherently untrustworthy. They wouldn't share a meal with them. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It's, It's much like telling the story this way. There was a man who was half dead, beaten, naked, on the side of the road. And the evangelical Christian pastor came walking up on him and saw him and went to the other side of the road and kept going. And then the guy who was a well-known figure in his community, his church community, who served like a deacon in that church community, saw him, walked around and kept going. And then the Muslim imam came and saw him and had compassion on him. That's how this sounds to this audience. He had compassion, verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, pouring on oil and wine. That was a regular medicinal approach they used at that time. He pours oil and wine on his wounds. 
Then he set him on his own animal. So he has this donkey. He sets him on his animal. Instead of him now riding the animal, he's going to take this man. He's going to ride the animal. He's going to help him out, and he's going to walk. Set him on his own animal. He took him to an inn. Now, an inn in that time, so you understand, is, is like you had a house and you had multi-levels, and the level at which the animals were in, which was on the bottom, that's where you would, you would also rent out space for people, potentially. If people wanted to stay there, you could rent out space there. It's not like a hotel now, like now, right? The animals are there, and there's some bedding there, and you can, you can stay there and, and pay a fee for it. So he leaves him in this inn. He takes him to this inn, and he takes care of him initially, Verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii. That's two days' wages in that time. Like you take a regular blue-collar working wage today. It's two days' wages. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. That might have taken care of a couple weeks' worth of care. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. Now here's what's important about this. He not only pays this man's bill, but he says, Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, that may not sound like a very big deal to us because we're in a consumer credit kind of culture where we have debt running around like crazy, and that's how we pay for things. And, okay, just put it on my tab, and I'll pay for it when I get back and help out. But in this culture, that's huge because if this man is left in the inn and no one comes back and pays his debt, and let's say the two denarii worth of fees run out, right? It's already been consumed, And the man, let's say, is there for six weeks, and he has four weeks' worth of debt. If no one's coming back to pay that debt, in that culture, this man who's left in that inn becomes the owner of the inn's slave. And so this Samaritan saves him from slavery. He not only has compassion on him and heals him and cares for him and picks him up and takes him to safety, but then he frees him, he saves him from slavery. He pays the cost so this man doesn't end up as a slave. Now that Jesus has established what being a man, this is a man who loves God. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a man who loves others. Now that he's established what a man who loves God and loves others looks like, Jesus changes the question. See, the man wanted to know, if you look at verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's his question. Who is my neighbor? That is not the question Jesus wants to deal with. Look down at verse 36, because Jesus wants to talk about not who your neighbor is, but what it means to be a good neighbor. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. See, the man wants to know, who's my neighbor? Narrow the class of people upon which I have to show any kind of love. And Jesus says, no, that's not the right question. You don't understand the law. The point is, who are you being a neighbor to? What does a good neighbor look like? Who was a a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, you're to be be a good neighbor. Your life is to be about loving God and others, and there's no way out of this. And if you want to point to your own goodness and good works, then here's what you have to get a hold of. If you can swallow your own garbage about the fact that that your good works outweigh your bad, and thus you deserve eternal life, then try swallowing the fact that you can never receive eternal life unless you love God and others above yourself. 
And even then, that needs to be true every moment of your life. And if it's not true, you're condemned in your sin. So how many of you have never sinned against God or anyone else? Raise your hand. Stand up and justify yourself. How many of you have loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself every moment of your life without fail? Anyone want to stand up and say that? No one can. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. All of us. None of us are good enough to earn eternal life. None of us. But we're commanded to love God and others, and we're commanded to be merciful to people. And there are three lessons that we really learn here that I want to point out in this story. One, you, you have not, you have not been and cannot be justified by perfect attention to the law. Do you hear that? You have not been and you cannot be justified by perfect attention to the law. You cannot be declared righteous and forgiven your sins by perfect attention to the law. You cannot stand before God ever in your life, and when he asks you, why should you be able to come into heaven, you answer, because of how well I loved you and my neighbor. Because he's going to say, did you do that perfectly every moment of your life? No. Then you're condemned in your sin. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I, I want to make this as abundantly clear as I can because the Apostle Paul takes on this idea that you have not been and cannot be justified by perfect tension of the law. Romans chapter 3, as Paul has been pointing out for a couple of chapters that everyone is a sinner and everyone justly deserves condemnation. In verse 9 he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? In other words, Jews and Greeks or Gentiles? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, that encompasses every ethnicity, all are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Listen, here's the point. You're going to stand in front of God, and if you're going to try to offer him your good works and say, my good works outweigh my bad works, what Paul is saying is when you stand before God and your life is held up against the mirror of God's law, your mouth will be shut. You will have nothing to say. You will no longer continue trying to justify yourself. You will recognize your sin and the fact that you deserve condemnation. Every mouth will be stopped. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See what Jesus did with this man is he pointed out that he's a sinner. He pointed out to this self-righteous, self-justifying religious leader, that you have no hope to inherit eternal life. You can't do it. It's above you. None of us can. Second lesson from the Good Samaritan passage is this. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Hear that? Now, when Jesus told the story, was he originally pointing to himself as the Good Samaritan? No. But Luke is using the story in such a way that he is. Luke is pointing out that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Why do I say that? 
Jesus is the one who comes and shows compassion and mercy to people. He looked on them as like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, and he had compassion on them. He's the one who came and healed us. He's the one who came and paid the fee, our penalty for our sin. He's the one who did that. He's the one who came and saved us from slavery. See, just like the good Samaritan comes in and has compassion and heals the man and pays his fee and saves him from slavery, Jesus, the good Samaritan, comes and does that for us. Those who are dead in sin and trespasses. Naked, poor, pitiable, and blind. Jesus comes and saves. Because Jesus loved God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength above all else and loved his neighbor as himself. He was everything we failed to be. Romans 3.21, if you look there, if you're still there, but now, see, no human being will be justified in his sight, but now the righteousness of God, see, we don't have it. We can't earn it. But now it's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the Old Testament points forward to this righteousness that's coming. But it's come. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, forgiven for their sins by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus came and paid the price to free us from our slavery, whom God, Jesus was put forward, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction of his wrath and judgment by his blood to be received by faith. See, Jesus is the good Samaritan. Third, as those who are saved by Jesus, as those who are saved by Jesus, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't you hear that? We're empowered by the Holy Spirit and commanded to follow his example. I don't want you to think that because I say Jesus is the good Samaritan that there isn't also a lesson of example for us because there is a lesson of Jesus steps in and is the way. He's not just the teacher, but he is the Savior. But there's also an understanding of this passage that we need to pick up that Jesus is also saying, you need to go and do likewise. Follow my example. Follow my example. Ephesians chapter 2 picks us up. We are filled by the Holy Spirit and commanded to follow his example. In Ephesians chapter 2, when the Apostle Paul talks about our salvation, he makes the statement in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in Christ. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Hear that? You don't do anything here. Even your faith isn't virtuous. It's even the gift of God. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, no one will stand before the Lord and boast and self-justify and point to themselves because when the law is held up, all our mouths will be shut. And we will recognize that it's only grace, the gift of God in Jesus that saves us, that he was the good Samaritan we failed to be, and that we were the man on the side of the road laying there half, na- half dead and naked and poor and in need of help and in need of sa- salvation from slavery. 
And he came and picked us up and saved us. And you won't boast. You won't stand before God and declare your own righteousness. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, we're not just saved by Jesus, but, and from, his, from God's wrath we're saved unto something, which is good works, that we might follow in his footsteps. He saved us, not as our own doing, but after he saved us, not as a result of our good works, he still says, now I want you to go out and live this way. Go keep my commands. Go love God and love your neighbor. Why? Because you're, my, you're, you're mine now, and you're going to follow me. And that's what I did. I did that for you because you failed. So I did it for you. And now that I've done it for you, and you're mine, and you're forgiven, and you're declared righteous, now go do likewise. Love people the same way that I loved you. See, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. May we look to Jesus, the true good Samaritan, who picked us up and cleaned us off and healed us and paid our debt and saved us from slavery to sin. If you're looking to him, you're still on the side of, if you're, sorry, if you're not looking to him, you're still on the side of the road, naked, dying, poor, and in slavery to sin. If you look to him, you'll be saved. If we are looking to him, may we look to him even more as our hope and our salvation, and may God grant us the ability to be like him. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that your word would resonate in our hearts, that you would change us, that you would work in us, that we would recognize that it is, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the one who saves us. That You sent him because you loved him and you loved us. And you sent the Spirit for the same reason. And may the Holy Spirit apply the word to our lives. Make us see our need for Jesus and rejoice in him. And may he not only help us rejoice in Christ and trust in him so that we're forgiven and declared righteous, but Father, work in us in such a way that we are made like unto your Son, that we love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and that we love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.